This is the Conduit Church Teaching Podcast. Thanks for joining us. It's our mission to be a conduit of Jesus to the community in front of us and the world around us, starting with the teaching of His Word. Enjoy the message. How many of you grew up in a small town? Come on, look around here. Man, lots of you. Okay, now when we say small town, now uh, Michael, I don't know if this was, counts you in, in Georgia, but the town I grew up in had about 1,500 people. Is, is anybody, my wife, surrounded by towns of 200 people. My wife was actually a Viking woman that uh, uh, came from North Dakota. <laughs> Do you all know about the North Dakota? <laughs> Any, out of curiosity, is anyone else in here from North Dakota? What? I didn't know that. So you know about Ludafisk and Lefsa, Gordy and Lanny? Like, I mean, my wife, uh, her accent is endearing. Um, it's gone. It's completely gone. But if we were to go back to Grand Forks, I bet it would come back within. But it, it is cute for about a day. And then you're like, Gordy and Lanny, can I make you some eggs, you know? Um, but this, <laughs> here's the thing about a small town. I know that John Mellencamp romanticized it. You know, he was born in a small town. He can breathe in a small town, right? Uh, and by the way, it was great. The town I grew up in was 1,500 people, surrounded by towns of 200 people. But here's the downside of a small town that they don't prepare you for, nor that John Mellencamp wrote about, which was that when you grow up in a small town, everybody knows everything about you. You can't get away with anything. Like pushing tires out, in a, hypothetically speaking, of course, um, pushing tractor tires out of the tractor shop, you know, at the middle of the night to, you know, a little stunt in town. And, you know, who's going to be up at two in the morning? Let me tell you who, the bread guy. Turns out the bread guy's up at two in the morning, and he uh, called my parents. We couldn't get away with anything. So the thing about a small town is it sounds great, and it sounds beautiful, but if you're not one of us, man, it's, you, you, you can be on the outside looking in real quick, and my dad, I mean, honestly, still, he, he doesn't have any technology, so he'll never see this, but he sits in his recliner at night, tidy whities watching like, like the Goldbergs, like he's watching, watching the TV. But in the background, he's got a police scanner on. Everybody has a police scanner in these towns. And CJ, I promise, you, you drive through Superior, Nebraska with your car, and at some point, a nice officer of the law, a peacekeeper, will call in a license plate identification to find out who you are and if you're trouble. And everybody in town knows that somebody else is in town who doesn't belong here in our town. So I don't know how John Mellencamp can rescue that in his songs, but that's the, the, the downside of a small town. Now, the town that Jesus is finding himself in John chapter four is a town, we, I can't decide if it's Sychar or Sicker. Uh, so we're going to kind of go with both. But he is in a small town of about 1,500 people in this little area called Samaria. And you might remember a story 
uh, in the other gospels about a Samaritan who helped a, a man who had been blind and you know beaten and uh, you know and we, we refer to him as the good Samaritan. By the way, that's not that word is not in the Bible. That's a subtitle that somebody thought would be helpful. I understand why, but for the purposes of of this story, we're going to actually say that this was a story about the bad Samaritan. Now, keeping in mind, there are no good Samaritans, right? There are none righteous, no, not one. We are all bad Samaritans in need of a savior to make us good, right? And so Jesus has come to this town called, let's say, Sicker for this moment, um, and he encounters a woman at a well in a very small town. This is a town where everybody would have known everything about everyone, especially if you had five husbands, the guy you're with now is not your husband. And I would even go further than that, and maybe some of you, if you were raised in a small town where your dad was raised, and then your dad's dad was raised. You know, I didn't know this in 1971. Can you, every time you gotta do one of those things online where you gotta spin to get your age, does anybody else feel the pain? I gotta keep spinning. Huh? I'm down to 60, oh, I gotta spin back up. But back in 71, like, I didn't know that I was paying for the sins of my father and my father's father. I didn't know that I was being defined. You know, I think it's Pete Scazzaro that says that Jesus might be in your heart, but your grandfather is in your bones. Like, you were given an uh, identity based not on anything other than your father and your father's father and your father's father's father. It's just, a, it's part of the heritage. And so you spend the rest of your life trying to get out from under that thing that you didn't even know was a thing. You just sensed it. You were, you were already in the pecking order when you were born based on which side of the tracks, but based on which side of the tracks your dad was and your grandpa. I don't know if that's her story, but I know that her story is for sure exactly like anybody else in a small town. Everybody knew everything she had ever done. And this Samaritan woman is exactly who Jesus came to find. It says in chapter four, he's leaving, right, Jerusalem. He's heading up to Galilee, this amazing place called Galilee. We're gonna be there in February of 2023. Some of you in this room are gonna be with me. The Galilee is like this, this oasis in the middle of, of chaos. It is today, and it was back then as well. But to get from Jerusalem to Galilee, right in between was this area called Samaria, and in this area called Samaria was this group of people, this people group that were descendants of uh, a time when Israel had been overtaken and invaded by Assyria. And the Assyrians uh, at some point married in between Jews and the Jews and the Assyrians became their own kind of people group. And that people group became known as the Samarians, Samaritans from Samaria. It would have been dangerous for Jesus and his disciples to go through there. They were not exactly looked on kindly by Samaritans, but it was also because Orthodox Jews, rabbis, would have literally gone east, gone around Samaria, gone up north, and then cut back west again to get to Samaria, uh, to uh, Galilee, to miss Samaria altogether. But it says here in John 4 that Jesus had to go through Samaria. 
The point was that he didn't have to go because it was on the way. The point was that he had to go because he had to go because he had an appointment with a woman in a small town and he also knew everything she had ever done. I love this because Luke 19.10 tells us that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. There is none righteous, right? None that will seek me. I'm seeking. He will find a way and seek those who are in the most desperate of need. This woman was ready and Jesus knew it. And so he risked the lives of his disciples. He risked his dignity and his credibility and marched right into Samaria to this well in this little town called Sikar to meet this woman. And when he gets there, he has a conversation with her. And this is how we're going to break this down, CJ. We're going to it's what he does for us. I actually love it that he, they don't give her a name because I think that you and I are way more like her than we really know. So it allows us maybe to more like, okay, this is who I am as well. He identifies the problem. Her problem is our problem. He offers the solution, the same solution you and I need. And then the third thing he does is that was, his words were so jarring to her that she leaves her jar that she came for water at the well behind. That's the way that this was broken down. And we're going to do that with us in the few minutes that we have together. And I want you to remember as we go through this, the reason John wrote his gospel was so that you might believe that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Do you see that? Three things, that you believe he's the Messiah, you believe that he is the Son of God, and that by believing that you might have life in his name. With that in mind, let's pray before we get into God's word. It's always best that you pray. Heavenly Father, your word is a light, your word is a lamp. It's a promise to us and my prayer today, Lord, is, is that we encounter you in your scriptures, in your word, that you, your words then are as relevant as they are to us today. We need you just like she needed you. And I pray today that those words will become alive into us and to our hearts. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. He's identifying her problem. And her problem is the same problem that you have, the same problem I have that Jesus came to solve, and that is called spiritual dehydration. <laughs> let, let me show you what I mean. He gets to this well. So if chapter four starts, the Pharisees have found out that there's, you know, there's baptizing, so he's headed up to Samaria. But he gets through this well, verse seven, or let's say verse four. He'd learned that the Pharisee, I'm sorry, verse one. <laughs> we might need to get bigger. I think I got the 1.5s. I'm going to need the twos. Yeah. Uh, it might be because my wife is so beautiful that I'm just flustered. Is that po it's entirely possible that that's what's happening up here. But now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it wasn't him who baptized Jesus, but it was his disciples. Uh, not a small distinction, by the way. It's what happens all the time that stories are told and lies are told about Jesus' followers and a little bit of truth and a lot of lie in it. But he, So he leaves Judea and he goes back to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. And so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground where Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus 
tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. Now, it was about noon is one of the first clues that we know that something's going on with this woman. Why Samaria? Why this woman? It's about noon. Now, uh, Caleb and, and Sydney Chapel are actually back from uh, Tanzania. Am I getting the right? Co- is it Tanzania? Zambia. They all run together. But Victoria Falls is right in the middle of all this, right? So if, you, if we want to go see over and hang out, anyway, Caleb and Sydney are back from Zambia. Uh, where they are drilling water wells for people have been drilling for the last few months, drilling multiple wells. They're back for a couple months. You all sent them off in a great uh, prayer just a few months ago. They're just here back for a little bit. But drilling wells, you know that people get their water in the morning in in a hot climate. I, I actually don't know the climate in Zambia, but the further north you get into Africa, the further north where you are, especially where Israel is, in the middle of the summer, it is hot in the summer. And so what you know is a water well where people come to get their water, they go in the morning time because it's cool. By the way, they need water throughout the day. By the, if you wait till afternoon, you've already needed water to cook for the morning. So the fact that she's there at noon, number one, and the fact that she is there alone, number two, tells you that this is a woman whose life has been upended and is no longer a part of a community. She's alone and she is thirsty, just not for water. She just doesn't know it yet. You see, spiritual dehydration is what Jesus is here to diagnose for her, to tell her what the problem is. She thinks she's just there to get water to cook with, and she's trying to do it in a way where she's not going to be shamed one more time to be marginalized anymore, to be mocked. And so coming at noon means she could do it alone. And here she finds this guy named Jesus sitting there, and imagine how her heart must have sunk. Oh, one more. He's going to mock me. I don't know, maybe she was afraid that he would abuse her. Like he, she had been through a lot. But here's what we know. She's there because she had to be, because there was no other place. We know that she was there not because she was physically thirsty, because she was thirsty in her soul. She was dehydrated. So verse 7, when the Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said, will you give me to drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. But the Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew, I am a Samaritan woman, how can you ask me for a drink? Jews do not associate with Samaritans. If you've got a a note in your Bible at the bottom, it might say this because it's uh, accurate, the more accurate translation there is that Jews didn't share the same utensils or uh, beverage, like uh, jars, whatever, as as a Samaritan. So it's not that they didn't associate. Clearly, they were going into town to buy sandwiches, but they specifically wouldn't drink after each other. Again, just like a small town, I was a little kid where, you know, Lori's germs, no returns, can't drink after, you know, picking on each other. Did you guys ever do that? Like, but this is like a really terrible version of that. We don't drink after each other because you're that gross and you're that dirty that we wouldn't even share the same jar together. But Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God, and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, <laughs> you got nothing to draw water with. This well is deep. Where can you get this living water? She is, I mean, I'm sure she's thinking what I'd have been thinking. I don't have to come here anymore by myself, and you got this source of water that I don't have to mess with. 
point me in that direction. That's what I need. But Jesus wasn't giving her that kind of water. The water he was going to give her was that she could come back to this well with no shame. She could come back first thing in the morning because he's about to just wash away not her thirst, but her shame. So Jesus answered, verse 13, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. She was thirsty. Now he's been in Jerusalem. It's not that they weren't thirsty in Jerusalem. Religious people specifically have a way of masking your thirst because we're busy doing other things and so you don't even know that you're thirsty. This uh, past week in Honduras, one of the young men uh, on the trip got a a respiratory infection. Um, It wasn't COVID. I don't know why I feel compelled to have to say that, but he actually had a whole lot of symptoms. And as a teenager, that's how you know it wasn't COVID in a teenager because he was actually sick. But he... You know, I mean, I'm just telling you, there's a, at-risk populations, so and you're 16 is just not one of them. So he's sick. He's got a fever. Now, I, I'm going to say this. When we were at the, Shannon and I were at the airport on Monday, and I want you to know that he mocked my hair. <laughs> completely roasted me. I'm not saying that's why he got sick, but I am saying that <laughs> we don't know, right? But anyway, He's sick. <laughs> And he's, uh, he's being told, you need to drink a lot of water, right? Every doctor, you drink, are you drinking lots of water? Drink lots of water. That's the way you're going to get better. So they come back and check on him in a few hours. He is devolved. He's feeling even worse. He's feeling more sick. And they ask him, well, did you drink water? And he said, no, I wasn't thirsty. Okay. Well, let me tell you about how thirsty he really was. They put him in a truck, they drive him to a little private hospital, and he is so dehydrated, he can't even think straight right now. They got to fill him full of fluids. And by the way, fill him full of fluids. We've seen this a hundred times on the mission field. You put a IV in him, you throw him fluids in him, and all of a sudden he's like, his color is returned. He's back to roasting people again. He's back. Point is, he was dehydrated. He just didn't know that he was. You're trying to make somebody drink water that they don't want to drink because they don't think they need it. That's religious people in Jerusalem. They've now come to a place where the, 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 she, she's got no pride, she's got no dignity left. She is ready to drink. And that is the greatest gift. I, I think that uh, C.S. Lewis in his book, The Problem of Pain, summed this up so, so beautifully when he said that prostitutes are in no danger of finding their present life so satisfactory that they cannot turn to God. The proud... The avaricious, the self-righteous are in that danger. Now, I want to say something very specifically here, very important for me anyway to say, this woman was not a prostitute. I want you to know that. And I also want you to know that this woman, there, any, you know, if most commentaries that you read uh, written over the years will point to her as a sinner, and it's her sin because she married all these men, but I want you to think with me in a truly patriarchal society, okay? I know that people say the United States is that, and it makes me laugh because I have been in patriarchal societies, okay? In a patriar- an actual patriarchal society, the woman can't vote. The woman can't feed herself. She can't have a job. She, listen to me, she can't file for divorce because she had no rights, 
In, in Haiti, we've some of our closest friends, and by the way, you sent last week $20,000 went to Haiti. That is not included in the number that Mo shared. $20,000 went to Haiti. Pastor LaFleur is there right now sourcing fuel from the black market, sourcing food from the black market. We are, I, the country might be burning down around it, but we're building an oasis of peace, an oasis of Jesus in the middle of Jacques Mel Haiti, and you guys paid the bill for that this week, so thank you for that. But... One of the things that I've seen in Haiti over the years was there are amazing young women, they can't get a job. They're, they are in danger of being abused, of being, uh, we'll say there's children, of being abused. It's not a safe place to be a single woman. And so a man comes along, he offers the idea of uh, safety, of provision, of, of children. And then if he leaves her, and usually he leaves her with a parting gift called a baby, now she's back on her own again. So here this woman, we don't know this, but we can know that she for sure couldn't have been the one to file for divorce. And we can know that she was vulnerable and that it isn't so simple as that she was just a loose woman. She was scared. No wonder Jesus would have empathy coming for a woman like that to say, look, you've been trying to find this hole, fill this hole, find this safety with all these men. And I've come to tell you that that's not it for you. You've been to that well plenty of times and you keep coming back because it leaves you thirsty. As I was reading this week about this and this message, my, my friend Chris Talley messaged me about a, a Chris Stapleton song. One of the greatest poets, right, of our modern day, Chris Stapleton, with a beard so thick and lustrous. I don't know if he's got a new cream rinse. I don't even know how you get a beard like that. I would have quit a long time ago. But Stapleton has this song called The Devil Makes Me Think Twice. Has anybody heard this song? It had been a while, and I promised I had never actually read the lyrics before. But I realized that this song is actually not unlike, like it's the gospel according to Chris Stapleton, because he's actually really articulating well what the woman at the well was feeling, but also in our modern era that we're literally no different. The song opens with this, I take a little smoke in the evening, I take a little whiskey on ice. I never get behind on killing my mind. It's just the kind of thing I like. It's just the kind of thing that I like. I take a little whiskey on ice. I'm trying to kill my mind. He's, he's literally talking about what we as humans tend to do, whether it is with alcohol, whether it is with narcotics, whether it's with food, whether it's with love, whether it's with sex, that there's this pain inside that I'm trying to numb, that I'm trying to kill in my mind so it'll shut my mind down. The Bible calls it thirst. Psalm 42, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. That's actually not just something that David his soul thirsted, that's actually a statement of truth in fact of all humanity. That is what our soul longs after, whether we know it or not. And then Jesus, to Chris Stapleton, to the woman at the well, to you, to me, says that, hey, your problem is spiritual dehydration, but I'm gonna offer you the solution now. And the solution, he says here in verses 14, 15, 16, that whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, 
The water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up into eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so I won't have to get thirsty and keep coming back here to, to get this water. You know what I'm saying? Like, if the, sign me up. Multi-level marketing, I'm all in. Whatever I need to do, like I'll put, put everybody in my downline. I, I want that water. If I don't have to keep coming back here and be shamed, if I don't have to keep coming back here to be alone, to be reminded of my pain, sign me up. But she's missing the point, of course. Because again, the gift that God's about to give her, that Jesus is about to give her, is she's going to be able to go back to that well any time of the day. Because he's about to wash away her shame. Back to Chris Stapleton. He said, the minute I saw you walking over, I figured I was digging my grave. You had the shovel. I knew you were trouble. But you're just the kind of trouble that I crave. You're just the kind of trouble that I crave. Now, if you replace the word crave with thirst and take it back to this situation, that's us all over again. Look, I'm 51 years old, and I have made some decisions in my life that I'm not proud of. I've made decisions with people that someday in heaven I've got some serious apologizing to do for, right? Because I, I made decisions, listen to me, that I was too smart to do. Have you ever uttered those words? Ah, oh, that was so stupid. I can't believe I did that. I had a counselor friend tell me once that when a human makes a decision that is beneath how smart they are, it's because they're not making the decision with their brain, they're making the decision with their heart. You see, the problem that I always thought was, if I had more information, I could solve my temptation. And I'm old enough to tell you, young people, hear me say this clearly, you will never solve temptation with information. And I say this, if you're a, a, um, if you've, if you're a smoker, you, you smoke, and there's no shame on this at all. And if you say, I really wanna quit, I really wanna quit. Is more information what you need? Literally every pack of cigarettes you buy has the Surgeon General warning on it that you're going to die. <laughs> I mean, for a while, you remember those commercials where they'd have those old, old, older people with their jaw taken out and their lungs hanging out? And they're like, I can't breathe because I... Like, we don't need more information. That's as scary as you... You know what I mean? Information didn't make you stop because it wasn't information that we needed. Jesus isn't going to give her any more information. He's here to offer her transformation to make decisions now because he's going to tell her and figure out here that the, the thing she's trying to fill in her heart was never about trying to be smart enough. It was about, listen to me, it was about knowing that she was loved enough, that she was accepted just as she was from our Father. And in that solution, the trouble, the shovel, the whole thing, we're going to skip ahead to this. Here's the trouble. I want to take you back to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 2, verse 13. He's come to this woman, and she's at a well. And he refers to himself as living water. Any 
self-respecting Jew. Now, she might not have recognized this word because as a Samaritan, they only recognized the first five books of the Torah. They did not recognize the rest of it. But his disciples certainly would have known what he was talking about if he ever used the word living water. But here's what he's telling her. My people have committed two sins, right? Jeremiah 2.13. Listen, what are those two sins? They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. This woman, you and me, when we forsake the spring of living water, we still need water. We still need the hydration. I don't know if you've ever seen a cistern before. This is one from Israel. Those of you that are going with me to Israel in February of 2023, you're gonna see actually this very cistern. These things were made with hammers and chisels and shovels. The well, Jacob's well that she drank from, was dug with shovels, was dug with uh, pickaxes. And so when you hear Chris Stapleton say, you had the shovel, I was digging my own grave. This is, this is what he's saying. I am, you're going to dig out these cisterns for you. And here's the greatest irony of all. Can you guys imagine this? Chapels in, in, uh, in, in Africa, for sure, in Haiti, especially more wealthy families or people, they'll actually, the well might be in town, but if you've got some means to you, you'll have a cistern. Now, today we have cisterns that are made of plastic or they're tubs or whatever, and they're still expensive, but not in these days. In these days, that was the only way to get a cistern to hold water. And the gift was, I didn't have to go out there to get my water anymore. This could hold water. It could hold rainwater. I could bring water in for it. Here's the problem. They leaked. And you didn't know if your cistern was going to hold water until you were done. You could have spent a year hammering, chiseling, digging, beating, hammering, chiseling, and get a cistern that held no water. My people have committed two evils. And by the way, the verse is right before that in Jeremiah. He talks about idols and turning to other gods. But he's like, I'm just summing it up and right here. Everything in, in Middle Tennessee, everything in her life that is not Christ, that is not fulfilling who we are and how we were prepared, is just us with a shovel digging a well, building out a cistern that cannot hold water. Husband number one, she's got the chisel, banging away, trying. It didn't work. She digs some more. She's got another husband. Husband three, husband four, she's still digging. Husband five, it's not working. Husband six isn't even a husband yet. She's not even gonna commit this time because I'm so tired of digging. But Christ said that he is the living water to her. An image that she would have known because in the Torah, what she did believe in was the book of Exodus. And in the book of Exodus, the people of Israel were carried out into the wilderness. And in the wilderness, in the King James, it says wilderness, but understand King James wilderness actually means desert, okay? And in the desert, guess what there's none of? Water. And so there's this passage, I think it's around Exodus 17, where Moses uh, strikes a rock and water flows from the rock. And they were so thankful because water now was uh, like, like rivers of living water. Christ says, I'm the rock, water coming from the rock. You begin to see the metaphor here. But look what 1 Corinthians 10 tells us. The rock followed them wherever they went. 
It wasn't just a rock and they had to keep coming back to the rock. The promise that Jesus is giving here is that I'm gonna be the rock and the rock is gonna follow you wherever you go. We take for granted in America because you woke up this morning, you turned on a faucet to brush your teeth and water was miraculously there. You turned on a shower and it was warm. Do you guys have warm showers yet? You just got it? Praise him in the sanctuary. It's so... <laughs> like, I know all these people are doing these cold water plunges and what, I don't know, whatever nutty stuff they're doing. But man, when you're over there, I just want a warm shower, right? But wake you right up. But water coming out of a gravity-fed situation, but, but he's saying, I'm gonna be a river of living water that I'm gonna flow with you forever. And do you see the language that he's using here? The rivers of living water are gonna come, it's gonna well up within you into eternal life. Do you see the promise that he's making here? This is a promise that the only possible response to, the only proper and brilliant and logical response is to do what she did, which is leave the jar behind. She got so excited. She was heading into town to tell her friends and she left the jar behind. Now, I don't know if she did it just because she was so excited, but I love the word of God and I love how the Holy Spirit works because in doing so, she might've just forgot the jar, but in doing so, she was preaching a message that she maybe you didn't even know 2,000 years later. Drop the dadgum jar and follow the rock. But look what happens. Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when we will worship the Father neither on this mountain in Jerusalem. You Samaritans, right? You worship something you don't know. I think it's verse 22. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. Yet as time is coming when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. How many of you have read that passage before? Just quickly, I just want to get an idea of who. And some of you haven't, that's fine. I wanted to get an idea because when you read that, it's so beautiful and it feels super esoteric, but it's super practical. You see, the Jews worshiped what we do know because what they knew, what they had was the word of God. They had the Torah. It was the truth. Now, the Samaritans, on the other hand, worshiped what they did not know, right? They had the, the five books of the Torah, but it was what they didn't know. It was more ethereal. It was more about the spirit for them. Now, in our world, we got churches that are Bible churches, right? We're a Bible church. By the way, we are a Bible church. But the Bible without the Spirit, you can be a theological porcupine. You make a really great point, and nobody can touch you. You're just sharp and prickly. And I've been on the other side, where it's a, where it's a Holy Spirit church. And it is all gas and no brakes. Bumper cars for Jesus. Like we're just speeding around and crashing into each other and it's a scene and it's awesome and it's fun and you can make some terrible decisions because you didn't have any truth and you thought the Spirit told you to do it. Just so you know, by the way, the Spirit will never tell you to do anything that the Word of God told you not to do. If you ever get some, quote, word from the Lord but it contradicts the Scripture, that's what happened to Joseph Smith. That's what happened to Muhammad. Right? I, I can keep going. But the, that's why we need the spirit and the truth. And so what Jesus was saying to them, there is a time coming and now is that the Holy Spirit will be here. So now you can worship, worship him in truth and in spirit. And we need both. The rest of the book of John, the, the Holy Spirit is brought up 
dozens of times. John 7, he speaks of the, uh, the Holy Spirit, which was this river of living water. This he spoke of the Spirit, which was yet to come. John 14, 15, 16, I'm not going to leave you alone as orphans. I'm going to send you the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not an intern, right? I am not Holy Ghost Junior, right? Scooch up over. Hey, Jesus, scoot over. I got, I, I got this one. No, the Holy Spirit is alive and well and is real and is a person that is involved in our lives. He says, God is spirit. Those who worship him will worship him in spirit and in truth. And often, again, John 7, when he's here about water, water is a, it's a picture of the Holy Spirit. Now, ooh, buddy, we gotta go. I, I, need, you, I need you to know this, though. Uh, you can still beat the Baptists to uh, soul shine if we were... You're definitely going to beat the charismatics. Like, they're going to be like 3 o'clock. But <laughs> Chris Stapleton says that my mama set a good example. Daddy always gave me good advice. Jesus tried to steer me in the right direction, but the devil made me think twice. The devil made me think twice. When you look at the woman at the well, she starts out, oh, he's a Jewish man. And then at one point, she's like, oh, I perceive you're a prophet. You're a teacher. You're... Mama set a good example, right? Daddy gave me good advice. Jesus came to steer me in the right direction. If that is your version of Jesus, if that is, he's just a good advice guy, like your mama, if it's just good advice, good example, right? It's going to crush you. The example of Jesus, if you, say, if you say that Jesus is a good teacher and he's been a good example, you need to hear me say this because you, you have to be honest with yourself. Jesus as an example will crush you. He didn't come to be a good example. He came to be your savior because there is no example that we could follow that could get us there. And that is what he's saying here. Like, Jesus gave me this and the devil made me think. The reason that the gospel of Stapleton leaves you with the devil in charge is because this isn't the gospel. This is just another form of religion. This is moral deism. This is what we are in most danger of in Middle Tennessee is that Jesus is a really good example, that Jesus has given me some good advice. This is us committing the sin of forsaking the spring of living water and digging for ourselves our own cisterns. When a cistern doesn't hold water, ancient Israel, one of the only things they were good for and what they used them for were graves. Look what Stapleton ends his song with. Someday I'm going six feet under, and when they start me, got me standing at the gate, they'll tally up my sins and won't let me in. Say, son, you're just a little too late. You're just a little too late. He starts out with, I was digging my own grave. You and me going to anything but the river of living water of Jesus and digging our own wells is us digging our own graves. There's no life in it. There's no life in just memorizing stuff. There's no life in just being a moral Pharisee. There's no life in, there's life in the spirit inside of you with the word of God inside of you at the same time. There's life in that. And that's what he came to give you and me. 
when Jesus, on the last night of his life, we saw this the last time we were in Israel, we'll see this again in February. The night before his trial, he was held in Caiaphas' house. And they would have ropes around his hands, hoisted him through a hole in the ceiling where his feet would have barely touched the ground, meaning that the vast majority of the weight was on his arms and his shoulders, causing excruciating pain all night long. But the hole that they put him into, the hole that they put him through, was a cistern that didn't hold water. Jesus, the spring of living water, was lowered into a cistern that didn't hold water. And when he was pulled out of there, the water went with him. And on a cross, when they stabbed him in his side with his heart, it says blood and what water flowed from the rock. Because he is the river of living water. And he is the only one that can bring that fulfillment, can give that thirst, and he travels with you everywhere you go. And you can do the Chris Stapleton thing and keep going back to the trouble. Or you can take a drink from the rock that's following along with you. And I pray that that's what you will do. We had a beautiful moment when we were in that, where we sang Jason led us in an old hymn and in this cistern, because it's all rock, like the echo was just incredible. It was, a, it was just a beautiful experience. But as we leave here today, my prayer for you is that you would allow the Holy Spirit to show you what cistern you are digging that is not holding water for you. You, is, is your spouse, are you putting this overwhelming weight on your spouse to be everything to you, to be your BFF, your lover, your, your funny, your provider? Your, you're, put, you're putting all this weight on them to be this thing that only God can be, and you're crushing them under the weight of that? Is it through sexual immorality that you're digging it? Is it through your career? None of these things are sin. Marriage isn't sin. Right? Your career isn't a sin. It's only if, you be, if that's where you're trying to maintain your life from. But if you'll start with the river of living water coming out of you, your career suddenly becomes just an act of worship to the Lord. Your career becomes this beautiful thing that you get to do with the excess of the Holy Spirit. Your marriage, your lives, but ask the Lord to show you, and he will. Stand to your feet. Ask the Lord to show you. He'll show you exactly where it is that you're digging. Some of you know it's super obvious, right? <laughs> but some of you don't know. But maybe put down the shovel this week. Put down the pickaxe and drink from the river of living water that is Christ. Heavenly Father, I know that that feels ethereal to some of us, but it's so true. It's just true. The woman who came out of the town, the town knew everything she had ever done, and it brought her so much shame. But Jesus said, he, you knew everything she had ever done, and it set her free. You know everything I've ever done, Jesus. And you don't define me by my past. 
You define me by my now. And I pray that in this room that we could all receive that kind of thing to know that what a terrifying thought that someone would know everything I've ever done. But what a... What an amazing and a beautiful thought, Jesus, that you knew everything she did and you didn't run away from her like everybody else in town. You ran to her. You run to us as well if we'll just come to you ready to say I'm ready for you to know everything I've ever done. It's in your name we pray. Amen.